Hello, welcome to On Top of the Market. Vancouver is often being described as a city without history, but I can tell you from our guests that we had today that that is uh, far from the truth. Uh, today on Top of the Market, we have uh, Daniel Francis with us. He's the author of a new book that I recently uh, had the pleasure of reading called Becoming Vancouver. It is the history of Vancouver, which is not long, but it's certainly diverse. And uh, Daniel does an excellent job of leading us through some of the big major events that have defined this city. So I hope you enjoy the show. Hi, Dan. Welcome. Welcome to our show. Thanks Thanks. for joining us. I really do appreciate it. So you and I met because I read your book this Christmas and I was just absolutely enthralled with it. And I wanted to have you in to tell us how you kind of got into writing history of Canada and history of Vancouver. So maybe you can start by sort of introducing yourself and telling our listeners a little bit about yourself and your growing up in Vancouver. Okay. Well, I was born on the West side Mm -hmm. in uh, 1947 in Point Grey. I uh, graduated from UBC and uh, with a degree in English and then um, decided we wanted to set out and see the rest of the country. So uh, I was married and then uh, Keita, my wife and I, set out in our Volkswagen van and drove across the country. How idyllic in uh, a Volkswagen yeah, van. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. So um, we ended up in Ottawa where I got a job on newspapers. And so after a year or two in newspapers, I went back to school, did a degree in Canadian studies at Carleton in Ottawa, and discovered, at that point is when I discovered history. I'd never taken a history course or paid any attention to history um, before that. But something about it, well, I wanted to be a writer. I knew that, and I guess I was looking for a subject. And when I was exposed to Canadian history in class, I thought, this is the subject. Endless number of stories that are already there and uh, I can figure out how to present them to a to a reading audience. Did you go to Car- Carleton to go to the journalism program there? Is that- no, the Canadian Studies program. Oh, Canadian Studies, yeah. yeah. I actually applied to Carleton coming out of high school because I thought, I'm going to go and be a journalist. And oh, yeah. I realized I wasn't a great writer. So I, <laughs> I kind of turned that off and went to Victoria. I find it interesting how many people who are from Vancouver have to leave at some point before they come back to appreciate it. Uh-huh. Does that make sense? Yes, you it know? does. So I that, went to Victoria. Certainly, that's how I felt. Yeah, yeah. And we were away for, what, 16 years? Ottawa and Montreal. Yeah. And then, uh, and then always probably thinking of coming back. But as you know, it's difficult. You sort of feel the doors slam behind you because of the prices. <laughs> but luckily, I got a job. Yeah. The only job I've ever had in Montreal for a couple of years. And we were able to save enough to, to get back here. To get back into Vancouver. Because people feel it's expensive now. It was it was expensive in the eighties. It was probably expensive in the seventies. It that, that's exactly it's always what I expensive. Say in real estate. I'm <laughs> always talking to people about that. As I've never been. I mean, twenty years selling real estate now, and every single year I've been here, everybody talks about how expensive it is. Yeah. So it hasn't really changed in that demographic. Yeah. But you know, moving away from the city, I, I know. And I was going to ask you about growing up in the city. I I grew up in Vancouver, and I can honestly say.
say I didn't appreciate what I had in front of me while I was here. The fact that I was able to go skiing or golfing or into the trails, like I really, to the beach, you don't really appreciate as a kid growing up in such a magnificent place until you go away and start talking to other people about Vancouver, which I think is kind of amazing about our city is that I don't think true Vancouverites really appreciate it until they go somewhere else and talk to somebody else about it. Yeah, there's a bit of that. I remember uh, we were living in Ottawa and uh, it was, um, oh, about 1980, 81. And we came back to visit family and my son, who was then a year and a half, it was Boxing Day and we were down at Spanish Banks waiting in the water. It was sunny and warm and that's when it hit me, I've got to move back here. Yeah. Because we were coming from Ottawa, it had been 30, it didn't rise above 30 below for 10 days. And so I thought, this is stupid. Yeah. <laughs> Why would anybody stay on the yeah. East Coast? So it took a few years, but we that's when we really took the decision yeah. to so, come back. So growing up in Vancouver, that wasn't, you said that you weren't like into necessarily history or you weren't looking at like building on history of Vancouver. You went away, you start becoming a writer, you start becoming a historian, you started ta- uh, doing like Canadian history to start with. Is that correct? That's right. I did. Yeah. yeah. yeah I wrote a, several books um, about the fur trade and uh, different uh different aspects of Canadian history. And I I think I remained in the East for 16 years for that long because it seemed like Ottawa and then Montreal were the places I had to be in order to make a living. Because you you don't make a living writing books, really. And so uh, most writers are teachers in this in Canada but uh, I did it freelancing as a researcher for the for the uh, film board for the museums doing research reports stuff like that so I felt I had to be there Uh, that turned out not to be correct I I, you know when I came back here I got editorial work and stuff like that because really as I say books in Canada generally unless you're Margaret Atwood (laughs) you don't make much money writing books Uh, no I, I would assume not not, um, but it is it is it is something that you know the history of our of our city. I mean, getting back to the book that you wrote here that we're talking about, becoming a Vancouver, is you know something I haven't really come across. So, did you see a vacancy in like Vancouver history that you thought you know I'm gonna I'm gonna start profiling my own city and yeah, kind of I think I did. That? I think I did. It was partly that, partly uh, in the. Um, I guess it was the 90s, uh, I worked as the editor of the um, British Columbia Encyclopedia, which was a mammoth project that I (laughs) wrote about 75% of it myself. And I worked with a publisher, the same publisher as this book, Howie White, at uh, Harbor Publishing. And that had been a really big project. And um, a lot of people worked long hours to produce it. When it was over, I, I sort of strangely felt I wanted a little project. Um, and I found uh, the story of this early mayor of Vancouver that really appealed to me. So I jumped into that. And that was my, I think that was my first book that I wrote. That was Taylor? L. Yeah, L.D. Taylor. Yeah. And that was the first book I wrote about the city. And I, there was something about writing about your hometown that's very appealing to become kind of the, the chronicler of your own city. What, what, what goes into getting the information? Like you talk, talk about writing an encyclopedia. I mean, we don't, I mean, nowadays we can go into 
Google and we can pretty much get anything we want. But how do you go about putting together an yeah, that was I, British Columbia? It's strange. Howie and I kind of came up with the idea at the same time. Probably if I'd known what it was going to grow into, I never would have done it. But I just started. Um, uh, I'd see an article in the newspaper about so-and-so or such-and-such, and I'd write, a, you know, 15, uh, 1,500 words or something and put it in a pile. And then gradually the pile got higher and higher and higher. And I think after about three or four years, uh, we looked at each other, Howie and I, and decided, well, maybe we do have a something here. And we got a little more serious. Don't you get to the point where you think you're going to miss something? Like, you Oh, know, definitely. Like, that must be. Oh, yeah. Like, how do you stop writing an encyclopedia? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, it's, it's easier when it's a book yeah. because you got space limits. Nowadays, I don't know whether I do it because, of course, you can write endlessly about everything. Endlessly. Uh, information's endless yeah that's right so how do you go about getting the information i guess that's the best like you know you like i remember being at uvic and having to go to get the microfiche of different uh you know articles to study you know because i was i was the generation where internet was just coming out yeah i was in university so we weren't really using it that way yeah Um, well i guess i just read a lot of newspapers read a lot of books a subject would strike me well that's important enough to be an encyclopedia and i'd uh, find out stuff about it and the internet was or must have been around a bit towards the end of the project because right. i can remember corporate history stuff yeah, like yeah. that Engels and volker <laughs> i'd go onto their website and uh and get the basic information but as i say it was useful that it could only be a few hundred words long <laughs> yeah i i, I mean it, it just seems <laughs> mind-blowing to me enrique and i are sometimes just trying to do small little projects for information inside the office and it takes me forever just to write you know what would be a pamphlet yeah what you're writing and yeah. I always feel like I'm missing information or not saying enough or it ends up being way too long you know so it, it helps to be a journalist I, to have yeah. a journalistic background right. I think A you write quickly and B you can you're not afraid of being a little glib a little yeah <laughs> not being perfect all the yeah, time is that's sometimes right. the, the trick to being a good writer you know and finding your own way and tone like I felt your book I read it in a couple of days and I'm not some fast reader or anything like uh-huh. that but I found like it had a really nice sort of flow about it that made it kind of really easy to follow and kind of um you know get a gist of what was going on you got a real kind of feeling for what the city is oh so, good you know it, well i mean we're sitting here right dan so i i obviously was taken by by your book quite a bit and i think uh, i think i mentioned this before but as a as a realtor uh and understanding your city it's something i teach all the time i want people to know their community i want people to know their city the background you know the layout of the streets and so on but you know i didn't even know how you know i would say 85% of your book was a, a surprise to me. Yeah. Uh, you know, especially the early days of Vancouver and kind of how it got developed. One of the things, uh, it was Granville, uh, you know, like was the name of the district of downtown before Vancouver was around. I didn't even know that. Yeah. You know, like how do you not know stuff like that and grow up in the city? It's not very old, right? I yeah. Mean, that's the that's the crazy thing. Vancouver is such a young city and as a realtor, I share that with people all the time. I'm like, you know, we don't know where this city is going to go because we're really in our infancy as far as uh, development, right? And so what was Vancouver like, I guess, in the early days? Like maybe you can share some of your kind of, um, some of the kind of funnier stories or things that you kind of 
of think well, really developed our city. Yeah, it was a, you know, it was a lot, it began as just this logging village. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a sawmill established and um, it, uh, the first people who came were working in the sawmill and uh, it grew up as this kind of ramshackle place, expanded along Water Street, the famous ga- Gassy Jack came and mm-hmm. built his hotel. And uh, hmm? the Dayton Hotel is John yeah. Dayton, right? Yeah. Jack? Yeah. Yeah. And, um, uh, he gets credit, but you know, it's a, it's a market. That's a marketing thing as much as anything else, I think to market Gastown. Right. But, uh, yeah, there were people like him, a few pioneers who came, um, and we're talking now the 1870s when it was called Granville, mm-hmm. it had been laid out as a town site by the provincial government. So pretty ramshackle place, but the, the turning point for Vancouver is the arrival of the transcontinental railway, of course, right. in the mid 1880s. And uh, once the decision is taken to um, to locate the terminus, the Pacific terminus for the CPR, um, <clears throat> that's that's what when Vancouver takes off. That's where it exploded. Yeah. Yeah. And and but even that, you know, it wasn't it didn't it explodes probably not the, not the right word because <laughs> it grew slowly at first. There was a recession and so on through the early 90s. And then really it takes off in the late 1890s, the Klondike Gold Rush and all the all the traffic that comes through Vancouver at that time right. and so on. But um, it was created in, in 1886. It was large enough to become a city then. One of my favorite parts of your book actually was just kind of the irony of them talking about naming it Vancouver, like wanting to call it Vancouver. Yes. And that's going to be confusing. (laughs) That was the CPR. Yeah. Uh, And uh, the head of the CPR at the time decided he, he wanted to call it Vancouver. There was quite a debate in the uh, legislature, provincial legislature that that was an inappropriate name. It was already taken for Vancouver Island. It was taken for Fort Vancouver down in what is now Oregon uh, in the fur trade country. So why did, it was confusing mm-hmm. to use that name, but uh, he thought it was useful to have these other places. It would put it; people would be able to find it on a map a lot easier. So the debate was held, and not surprisingly, the CPR won. <laughs> Did and, they win uh, most most debates? Back yes, then? yes, you know, it was a company. In a way, it was a company town. Right. In those early days, there wasn't much else here. The sugar mill came, Roger Sugar, Roger sugar yeah. but um, aside from that, they were the big employer. Um, so, uh, and they cleared most of the town. Of course, that led to the big fire in 86. Right. Another, uh, another historical moment that I don't think many Vancouverites even know about. Oh, yes. I, the town was basically wiped out, yeah. you know, a few months after it was created. And it was down, I think they were clearing land for the CPR down near where, where the roundhouse is now. Which is right here. Exactly. Like the, around the, the corner from right where now. we are. Yeah. We would have been wiped out by the fire. Okay. Interesting. <laughs> and it came <laughs> sweeping up and then down. Uh, into Gastown and wiped out most of the buildings of Gastown and then as quickly as it started stopped the wind the wind died and uh, and it uh, the fire petered out but I forget about 22 people maybe died in the fire uh, but most of the town but it, because it was so easily built uh, at the time it, you know they started building the next morning and it didn't take long to rebuild the whole town it had been small anyway made of wood yeah so up it, mill. up it came yeah that's right <laughs> or was the mill the mill yeah. didn't get burnt out it, it didn't it didn't no right. and by then there was another one um, down on the False Creek side 
Right at the and, end of Falls Creek. Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, very quickly it got back on its feet. Yeah. The, the, uh, during that time, the other sort of interesting note from a realtor standpoint was that our very first mayor, Malcolm McLean, was a real estate agent. Yes, which, of course he was. Which he got voted in. <laughs> and then I believe he, he the fire happened pretty yeah. soon thereafter. Yeah. So he suddenly was thrown in, oh, thrown into the fire. What a terrible way to, yeah. sorry, that was a bad pun. But, um, but I, I always find that to be like, how do realtors in this city not get to tell the story that our first mayor was a realtor? It's uh-huh. so Vancouver that. Yeah, he'd only been in the town, I think, for a few months. Yeah. Uh, before he decided to run for mayor. Yeah. Um, against one of the establishment figures, uh, the, the manager of the sawmill. Right, of course. But uh, I think I think the story goes that the the sawmill workers were on strike, mm-hmm. and so the manager of the mill uh, was quite unpopular all of a sudden, and so McLean came out of nowhere to steal uh, to steal the, the election. Guy. Vote yeah. for the other guy. Yeah. In, in, when we're talking about uh, naming Vancouver, I can say that uh, one of the funny things about being we're an international company, and so we do a lot of traveling to go out and see other places, and the confusion between Vancouver and Vancouver Island, and where Victoria is and compared all our colleagues on the island. It's something we are explaining all oh, yeah. the time to this day. So <laughs> they were right about the confusion, but I also think yeah. it's very appropriate. Well, you can blame anyway. Cornelius Van Horn <laughs> for that. Yeah, Van Horn. Again, that's the thing about when I read this book that I just kind of like, from from my standpoint, like Van Horn, there's a Van Horn build, building, you know, uh, there was a Lachlan Hamilton, I think he named the streets, yep. correct? Is that, yep. yeah, I'm just looking at my notes, but, uh, you know, Hamilton Street right here yep. in Gastown, he basically put a street Na- named himself. a street after himself yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is quite neat yeah it's most just, of the streets you know are named after cpr worthies executives right. of one kind or another or wars of, or, or wars, wars yeah. that's right yeah, yeah. And, when and, he and, ran out of cpr executives he started naming <laughs> them after wars yeah <laughs> let's talk about the cpr for a sec because like their development of the land like they got a land grant that was just a, a massive huge amount and they got the port moved to where they want it to be they were originally going to put it in Port Moody, is that correct? Yes. Sorry, as I was saying, the original, uh, the original uh, terminus was going to be Port Moody, and all kinds of um, land developers and so on moved in and snapped up the land there. But the um, it turned out the harbor wasn't uh, wasn't good enough, and the CPR wanted an area where they had where they could own most of the land. Right. So they worked out a deal with the provincial government and uh, got this huge land grant uh, covering most of downtown and then south to the almost to the Fraser River. Yeah, it's crazy um, when you look between at Trafalgar out in. Uh, out in Kits, and uh, I forget where the uh, where the eastern border was. Camby, maybe yeah, something like that. It wasn't terribly far. Ontario, east, I think. Yeah. I yeah, think Ontario, it, was Ontario. it was Ontario. Yeah, I'm trying to think. Of so, if you think of that, all the way down, almost to the Fraser. So, all of South Vancouver was their property. Yeah, and then they actually had the gall to ask private landowners around about, say, the, in the West End, to kick in one third of their <laughs> of their own property to sweeten the pot. Isn't that crazy? So. Uh, yeah, it's Power. amazing. And then, and then really, the history of the city in part, you talk about land development and, and real estate, has been the CPR selling this land they got for nothing back to the city <laughs> for great profits. And it goes right right down to the present day. It amazes me. The, the, the business a few years ago, listeners will remember uh, the CPR and the city were in a dispute over the Arbutus um, 
Greenway. Cor- Greenway, yeah. Well, where now the, it's where the, the old Sorry, railway, track. yeah, where the old railway ran. Yeah. And they had the gall to ask millions of dollars for that, which had been given to them for nothing to begin with. But they and they and they got it. So it's it's been a consistent thread in the history of the city. That's my mm. old haunt, going up and down those railway tracks. Oh, yeah. Like I lived, I mean, I've lived all over Carousel, Kitsilano, but also in Marple. And so I used to use that railway track to get myself up into all my friends' houses and schools yeah. and everything like that. Yeah. So the fact that it's a greenway now, I feel like it was a greenway back then. But um, <laughs> that CP rail, actually, that greenway is pretty amazing now. And I love the way that it's changed. It is, yeah. We walked it uh, last year. I think we made a little project of walking the entire length of it yeah, over a couple of days. Yeah. Yeah, so I just recently moved out to I was in I was in East Vancouver right for many many years and I just recently moved to Steveston and I can use that greenway pretty much to get from Steveston once I get out of Richmond yeah. it's straight downtown I mean yes because that's originally that's what it was the railway running out to the fish canneries and so on in exactly. Steveston yeah, it's pretty it's, it's pretty it was awesome. a wonderful service that yeah. uh, it was part of the interurban and uh, the streetcar system but I mean you could it, it ran it was something like every 15 minutes you get you get out to Marble pole for a nickel yeah. <laughs> uh, back in 15 minutes. It's wonderful. Isn't it like when, when I'm going through your book, one of the things I noticed is like transit really was the deciding, like kind of how the communities grew, right? Yes. And, it's a bit chicken and egg. Yeah. You know, did, did they extend the streetcar because people wanted it or, or did people follow the streetcar? But yeah, the streetcar, you know, out, out Maine uh, and then out through Kitsilino um, in 1909, I think the line went out uh, along Long Fourth Avenue to Alma, and uh, which is the line I, I mentioned that I suppose because it's a line I remember right. <laughs> when I was a little kid. It was still going until '55, I think, mm-hmm. and so I can remember going downtown with my grandmother on the streetcar. Um, but yes, and 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 much like today, much like the SkyTrain, the, the development happens at stations. You know, uh, these little nodes mm-hmm. of uh, development. It, it was the same then at streetcar stations. Develop. Uh, housing and so on residences would build up stores and so on and the city sort of grew in this patchwork uh manner I wish they paid a little bit more attention to it as they grew bigger and further because I think they missed a lot of opportunities to get more transit into different areas in Vancouver yeah. that could have helped because we're, we're really in, um, we're landlocked, you know, and that's one thing. I mean, getting back to real estate is that there's not much land here and it's the most beautiful place on earth, arguably, to a yeah. lot of people. And, you know, we don't have anywhere to go, but then we're all kind of getting tied into it. And so there's this constant battle we're having right now of, of you know, how do we grow? How do we put more? people in? How do we get costs down for housing? I mean, all these sorts Definitely. of things. And I think that if they thought about it a little bit more with transit, perhaps that would have kind of yes, helped I'm, spread I'm, us out. I'm sure they didn't see the place growing the way it, it has. A funny story about transit, though. I just got an email from an old friend, an old family friend uh, who'd moved to the United States but had read the book. And uh, in the book, I talk a bit about, a lot about the streetcar, but a bit about the observation car, which right. was this gimmick, the the uh, BC Electric, which is the company that ran the street railway. Um, they had, it was an open car with sort of bench seating, and and tourists or anybody uh, would climb on board and for five or ten cents they would drive around the city on this tour and um, uh, the conductor was a well-known character whose name escapes me at the moment but it'll come back to me maybe I can um, reading about and he used to tell jokes and point things
things out and so on. And this old, this old family friend said when she was a kid, she lived at about 41st and Dunbar, which was on the route of the car. And whenever the, the observation car went by, she and her friends, the, the neighborhood kids, would get together and come up to the corner and sing uh, hymns, she said, to the people when it when it made the turn around that corner at 41st and Dunbar, and they would throw money to these kids until the parents found out, apparently, and put a stop to it. So it was a really, it was a big thing, the observation car in the city. I didn't know that, that car went that far out. Yeah. I thought it was like um, downtown. I'd, you'd, you'd ha- I'd have to check on the years, but, uh, you know, the line went out Dunbar pretty early. Right. Um, so that by the 20s, you could, you could sort of circumnavigate the city, as it were, right. on the streetcar, out Dunbar, along 41st, back downtown. Yeah, when I was a kid, I mean, it's not streetcars, obviously, but like buses, I bust everywhere. Like, yeah, well, the bus routes pretty much follow the streetcar yeah, lines that's right. oh, that's in many right. ways nowadays. Yeah. And it was it was just crazy. I think about kind of the, the places I used to go, and one of them was I used to go with a friend of mine. I would have been 12, 14 years old, and we used to take the, our Beautis bus could take you all the way down to the P&E, which could get you to the Vancouver Canucks hockey games. Yeah. And uh, we used to have to go down through like the downtown east side and we was two boys yeah. sitting on this bus going, whoa, what are we oh, looking at? Here? I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. One of the things about growing up on the west side is you're you're very parochial. At least you were when I grew up there. And me. And well. very yeah. seldom, you know, Canby Street, oh, it's another world. Yeah. You very seldom crossed Granville. And uh, the the east side of the city was unknown to the to the west siders. And the only occasion every year we'd go to the east side would be to take the bus, as you say, down Hastings to the PNE. To the PNE, yeah, exactly. Or Canucks games back in the day, I guess, was the other sort of things that I got to deal with at least. Yeah, a little bit older, I guess that would have been when the Canucks come in the seventies or seventy, I think. Yeah, it was nineteen seventy. Yeah, so before then, yeah, the only thing was the. PNE. Once a year, you'd you'd cross uh, Main Street, but otherwise. So yeah, it's, it's funny thinking back how um, insular and parochial yeah. West Siders oh, it, it's were, and who knows? When I uh, when I moved to the East Side, uh, which uh, you know, in my adult life, uh, you know, things had changed obviously quite drastically. I moved over by Trout Lake, and my uh, I used to joke with my dad that his car would stop working as soon as it crossed Main Street because he was so unused to coming to the East Side yeah. from when we were younger yeah uh but man has it changed now I, i'll tell you it's like all the sort of people i grew up with west side families that's just property value and what they can afford and the moving out towards east and so it's a very similar community out in east vancouver now as i remembered it when i was uh-huh. a kid yeah on the west side in carisdale and it's probably. the same you know on the north shore i happen yeah. to live in north vancouver right. now but this uh, feelings between north vancouver and west vancouver and north vancouver apparently in the day was was a really rough it was it began as a logging community as well was considered this really rough place and i wrote a history of north vancouver about five years ago and the mayor i interviewed the mayor who knew a lot about it and uh he he grew up on sentinel hill in west vancouver he said when he was a kid every time they'd drive along marine drive into north vancouver his father would tell him to roll up the windows and lock the doors (laughs) 
a, a feeling that I think many people have now when they drive downtown through the downtown east side. Yeah, they, they think it's this horrible area that they have to protect themselves from. So these feelings are, are long held and not just Vancouver. The downtown east side actually I find kind of like almost fascinating. I mean, when 2010 Olympics came to Vancouver, I mean, the spotlight shone on the downtown east side when the Expo 86 uh, people reckon, like saw what was happening on the downtown east side. But when I'm reading your book, it sounds like that Skid Row sort of area has kind of been there from the start almost. Yeah, it has. Now, less... Um, is tragic the right word? Yeah. I, I don't know. But, yeah. I mean, but um, don't, don't before, dr- the, before the drugs uh, moved in and before the mental hospitals closed down and so many unfortunate patients were thrown out yeah. in the street without care, um, it, wa- it was a, a lower income area, an area of uh, cheap hotels and so on because it was uh, inhabited in part by seasonal workers when the economy of the coast now was, I'm talking about mid-century, was thriving in the lumber camps, mining, the ships going up and down and so on. There was a real thriving economy on the coast. Yeah. And, but it was seasonal, a lot of it. So when, uh, when the camp shut down, the men would come to town, stay in the cheap hotels right, right. and rooming houses and so on. So it always had that bit of a flavor to it. Yeah. But latterly, that, there was a combination of things that happened in the 50s um, that because uh, it was also the big shopping, I mean, yeah, shopping and entertainment district. I mean, uh, you say Woodward's, that's right. The great white way of, of uh, theaters along Hastings Street. It was an, a real attractive area that people would come to. But then little by little, the streetcar was based down there. It closed down. The, B, the BC, BC Hydro changed its headquarters. The ferry to North Vancouver shut down. I'm talking the 50s and 60s now. So a lot of the things that attracted uh, people to the neighborhood um, disappeared, and it lost some of its economic vibrancy. And I think you can pinpoint that as the time where the neighborhood took a turn uh, for the worst. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. And then it's had these other unfortunate developments that I just mentioned. It it really is. I I wish wish there was... um I wish there was a solution. Yeah, you know, so I do wish I. People but people were paying a little bit more attention to it. I, I do. I find it, it. It's like you said. You know, I used to go drive by there, and I never, you know, never get off the bus down in that time. But you know, as as you get older and you start, you know, selling real estate, enjoying Gastown and what it has to offer, and there's a real boom of restaurants and stuff that happened down that way. And he realized it's just it's just really sad. I mean, yeah. that's really all it is. It's not dangerous. It's sad. Yeah. Um, and and it would be great if we could, as a, as a city, kind of step up and try to help do something about that. Because yeah. There's a lot of you know people in really unfortunate situations, and the more expensive the city gets, and the more uh, less services that we're offering to people, then w- what are people supposed to do? Yeah. How are they supposed to get better? You know. No, there's a there's a dark side certainly to the city's history that I try and address. Uh, not emphasize, but address. Mm-hmm. Um, Isn't that the point of history? Though? Yes, to it like is. Look back. I mean, you yeah. Look at all of the stuff that we're dealing with now, with uh, you know how native peoples have been treated uh, throughout our province. I, I was kind of fascinated in your book to kind of learn more a little bit about that kind of like yeah. original settlement in Vancouver. But, yes, of course, uh, the city is built on indigenous land. Of course. Uh, the three groups, the, the Squamish, the Selwatooth, and the Mus- Musqueam. Right. And uh, they were pretty much 
uh, erased from the city in the early years of the 20th century. So that Kitts Point, which we know of, where the aquarium, uh, aquarium, the planetarium, and, and the museum and the archives are there, uh, and now it's a lovely park. Well, it was a, it was a native settlement. Mm-hmm. Um, a village was there until it was bought up by the province, and I think it was 1913, and the people basically kicked out. Yeah, um, nothing. I mean, they didn't yeah. get really anything for it. So, and, and the same, there were, there were native villages in Stanley Park, and the, the people were basically kicked out and sent to reserves on the North Shore. Um, but it's an interesting history because, of course, there's an arc. And in our own day, uh, we now have those three um, indigenous groups forming a development company, and uh, much of the development and building in the next decades will be on land that's partially, at least, owned by indigenous people. Right, right. Where the you're thing of the about, Jericho right the lands, yeah. and uh, yeah, and and the end of the bridge, end of the bridge, the, yeah, the uh, Burrard Bridge, and the area closer to Oak Ridge. Um, these are huge development projects that are partly owned by this MST corporation, which is the uh, indigenous people. So the, the story, to a degree, I don't know about full circle, but it, yeah. but it has an arc. But yeah. people should know that in the early days, that was not nowhere near the case. No, well, it was nowhere near the case, obviously, anywhere, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, I think that we need to take a step back and look at that and really try to make, I guess, the best amends we possibly can, because it, it, it's... It's uh, it's some sort of mind numbing when you think about it. When you you know people coming into a territory and then just unsettling sort of the situation. We talk about uh, you know in Vancouver, there's been a real um, uh, kind of racism and racial sort of conflicts that we've had in the past. And throughout your book, you sort of talk about how uh, you know Chinese were treated when they were first here. The Japanese entrapment camps. Uh, there was a story about the the boat with the Sikh um, uh, the Mara. Is that right? The Komagata Maru. Yeah. Maru, thank you. Yeah. And, uh, see, I told you my memories. <laughs> I, I'm trying, I'm trying. Um, but them coming into and not being allowed to port and not letting me on. But when I grew up here, like the multiculturalism of the city and the people of the city and the people I knew and my friends and people around me, it was so diverse. It's almost hard to believe that there, there, there would have been such conflict or there is or has been from day one in yeah. the city. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, it's a big, it's a major theme of the history and of my book yeah uh, because definitely prior to second world war and, and a bit afterwards um yes the city was marked by racism and isolation of different ethnicities in different parts of the city and not allowed to live other places so yeah it has a that's one of the aspects of the dark history see i'm i'm that bit older i'm 70 so i when i was in uh high school in the in, in grade school in the 50s and 60s um on the west side it was definitely not the multi-ethnic no. No. Uh, city that it was yeah. today yeah that really i mean that boom uh, sorry boot there was a boom in the what is it early late 80s early 90s well yes yeah. there was but and and uh, going back to the 60s when the when the immigration laws changed in Canada okay. the mid to late 60s was the beginning okay. of uh, opening up our borders to uh, different ethnicities yeah. so yes the cities changed remarkably yeah, in I, that I, time, and and with it, neighborhoods like like uh, Chinatown, which used to be reviled, and you'd never go down there. Um, I'm talking before the Second World War. Suddenly becomes this tourist attraction. Right. It's one of the big things people talk about about Vancouver. It's great Chinatown. So 
Yeah. There again, as with indigenous people, the story has an arc, and we we like to think it's changed for the better. I would. I mean, I think these developments that you were talking about, at least, I think are not only needed for the city, uh, but I love the fact that it's it's going to be kind of inclusive, or that it's they're in control of it. Uh, I think it, it, as an arc, I do think that's really important for our city to kind of embrace. Uh, there's been a lot of people that are upset about, you know, especially at the end of the Broad Street Bridge there, but we need housing we need more more there and it should be allowed i don't understand yeah. what the big problem would be but uh it's it is quite interesting i i look at more recently in vancouver and we look at the kind of the um i guess blaming other cultures for our prices uh you know in in the city and yes yeah, so and, and i i find it's kind of misled in a, in many ways but yes I, you you could argue there's that that the old racism that used to mark vancouver is still evident in a muted form uh the way we sometimes blame uh, asian outsiders for house values and so on and there's been really unfortunate backlash against asians with the pandemic uh so it seems to be still there but it's um it's certainly i don't want to be a pollyanna but it's certainly nothing like it was no. in the 20s 30s and 40s in in vancouver where i i think i don't know what year it was tong louis the the founder of um of london the, drugs of london drugs uh when he moved to the west side to my old neighborhood mm. not far from where my high school was and there was attempts to by the neighbors mm -hmm. to uh, have the city step in and refuse to allow him to buy a house there and so on in uh, in the lower dunbar area so that's not that long ago we still find on title searches uh, for properties in different locations that they have got, you know, uh, you know, covenants. You know, oh yeah, against it, it's quite, it's quite shocking. And the fact that the that they haven't just deleted those and gotten rid of them also, I find quite puzzling. Yeah, I don't see the point in keeping it there. Um, but yeah, I, I just find, I mean, I, I always I tell this story. Um, a lot of people used to come up to me all the time as a realtor, and they'd say, you know, this, uh, you know, they're buying a, the city's being bought up or vacant home taxes or why. They, the prices are getting driven up and so on and so forth. But there's such another side to that story. I remember uh, selling a house to a gentleman and he was doing, buying it for his daughter and she was only 24 years old, so she was young. Uh, but she bought the house and I, I was having a conversation with him during the inspection with a translator and he was he was an artist from China and he was showing me his works from art, uh, from uh, that he was working on he was this fascinating gentleman and he was telling me about Granville Island and he said the reason he's buying this house here is because he wants his daughter to be able to go to Granville Island and be able to get the fresh fish and the fresh produce and the fresh like he was he wanted a better life for his daughter that's uh -huh. what he was looking for and I just like I love that and then I know the daughter who I've met and seen a few times since then and she's she's lovely and she's she loves this city and she's become a real true Vancouverite you know what I mean yeah and she's gonna be the future of the city because sure. she wants to invest in it you know there's a there's a positive here instead of always looking at the just the house prices and also that wealth has fallen to a lot of people who are in Vancouver and have been able to sort of grow other areas, if that uh -huh. makes sense. And we can't really do anything with supply and demand unless we build more, Yeah, you know? And so I think that it's sometimes misguided on where that kind of that racial tension comes from in this city sometimes right now. And it was just kind of really interesting to me to read the book and see, you know, the problems that were had back then. I agree, different, <laughs> much different yeah. scenario, but. Oh yeah, in a sense, the city began with a race riot. 
I mean, right. in 87, 1887, the year after it was created, I mean, there was this uh, guy who got a contract to clear the West End eh, for settlement because it was all forest then. And he hired, uh, brought in Chinese workers to do it. And uh, this so disturbed the citizens of Vancouver that they a mob got together and marched out to the West End and tore down the tents that the guys were living in and herded them down to the waterfront, put them on a boat and sent them back to Victoria and then tried to, you know, at that time, if you would, if you did business with uh, Chinese people or you were Chinese, people would put marks on your door and so on. They, because of that riot, they had to, uh, the provincial government had to step in and send in some special constables. So sort of within a year of its founding, Vancouver not only burned to the ground, but it was also under martial law. That's crazy. So uh, this it's, is our history. Yeah. Well, this is, this is the whole point. Yeah. It's so seldom told, you know, like I, I don't remember learning anything about Vancouver in school. Yeah. Well, it's, yeah. People always say that about not remembering what they learn in school. I, uh, and it's probably true because you don't do a lot of local history in, in school, um, civic still? history. I don't think so. Really? Just no, I've written a lot of school textbooks and I don't remember, uh, having much to do with civic history and uh, in because uh, there's so much provincial and federal and so on um, but yeah it'd be nice if they did more I think I think they should I mean it's not like it's a long history so yeah and, you know it doesn't That's take too long <laughs> how long's your book I mean you got you got a lot of it through there yeah um, you know as Vancouver grew kind of switching topics a little bit but as Vancouver city grew like what do you think the biggest events were like more modern I mean we talked about uh you said in the 19 uh, was it the 1950s it was like uh the immigration change so that kind of helped grow the city is yeah it? yeah but like what were some other sort of big events that you think i would think uh Vancouver? maybe the deindustrialization um had the most impact the the development of of uh, what used to be industrial areas um I'm thinking now of Coal Harbor mm -hmm. and uh, False Creek. False Creek, of course, you know, used to be the industrial center of Vancouver. Mm -hmm. It was filled with mills and various factories of different kinds and uh, was a pit, yeah. you know, and... Um, and uh, full of pollution and smog. Uh, when I was a kid, I can remember those factories and so on. And and uh, in the 1960s, much of that changed, the late 50s and 60s, so that uh, Coal Harbor, you know, down where the Bayshore is, uh, Bayshore Hotel, um, and the entrance to the park was largely filled with a, a huge sawmill and various industries related to the, the maritime industries, boat building, machine works, engine works, that kind of thing. And that was all cleared out by the time um, the hotel opens in 1960. And it was kind of a pattern that was followed. That the, um, the, the movement of industries, heavy industries, out of these areas and being replaced by recreational areas, entertainment districts, and so on. So the one most of us will think of now is False Creek. Of course. And so that happens in the late 60s and early 70s. Um, when uh, when the decision is taken to transform Falls Creek from an industrial area to a uh, 
to a recreational uh, residential area, and South Falls Creek was developed uh, during the early 70s, and it's a real turning point, I think, for the city, and we're talking about the future. It's a real turning point for the future, I think, too, because those le- it's on leased land, and those leases are coming up. You'll know about this better than I, Absolutely. and the city has big decisions to make about what it's going to do about South Falls Creek, which was such an interesting um, revolution, well, I don't know about revolutionary, but dramatic yeah. uh, ch- uh, community when it was built right. uh, back in the 70s, and a lovely community. Yeah. And uh, oh yeah, yeah. And now decisions have to be taken about uh, what's going to happen to that yeah. area. So that's certainly a big turning point to me. Yeah. It's when you think about turning points, <clears throat> a lot of people also point at uh, at the great freeway, to, supposed great freeway debate of. Uh, 1969, and that was an attempt by the mayor, Tom Campbell, then Tom Terrific, as he was known <laughs> to those of us who found him amusing, um, to develop, drive a freeway through the downtown area, through Gastown, through Chinatown, destroying those communities, Strathcona. hooking up uh, Strathcona, yeah. hooking up with the waterfront, and then driving a third crossing across to North Shore. That was the big debate in the late 60s, early 60s. 70s, and um, it was going on around the world. Yes. I recently read that post-war, in the 50s and 60s, more buildings were destroyed by redevelopment in London, England, than were destroyed by bombers during the Blitz. Um, it was just the rage. New York was the same. Uh, Robert Moses is the famous figure there. Toronto was the same. Seattle is the same. We think about that big freeway that yeah. goes through Seattle. It's horrible. And, and that's what uh, Vancouver was uh, spared. Yeah. Because the people uh, objected, and there was big debates, public debates, and, and the, uh, the whole project was eventually stopped. Yeah. Um, so... People think of that as being another big... And, and the turning point was not just sort of the shape of the city or what it looked like or preserving neighborhoods, but it was also political at, at that time and, um, and a certain mindset about how politics should happen in the city changed. Right. And uh, a new group came in and community groups also were born that are still with us today. The Downtown Eastside Residents Association right. was formed at that time. And and there was a feeling that it was time to give people who lived in the city uh, more decision, more influence over this decision making, so that that whole process of decision making changed at the same time. So the the 70s was a really interesting thing. Uh, I sometimes think that you know Expo gets too much credit Expo 86 as this big event that supposedly put Vancouver on the map and stuff but all these important developments the deindustrialization the development of so many of the neighborhoods we take for granted now were happening in the 60s and, and 70s long before Expo yeah they were like the afterthought Expo yeah it's kind of like you know continuation maybe yes. is a good way of putting yeah. it I, um, that highway I think about it all the time every time you know, when you travel to any other city most cities have a major highway that yes. goes through their downtown town in some capacity and Vancouver doesn't and thank God it doesn't we don't have the space for it it would have I mean destroyed amazing communities yeah. that we had so I'm glad they made it but it was approved was it not at one point that 
the highway, and then they I went back. I on guess it. maybe you could I don't say know where it was. I heard that, but I guess you could maybe say it was approved. I mean, the city planned to do it, mm-hmm. and then we're forced to have uh, meetings mm-hmm. um, in which um, people voiced their objections. But they still kept on going. A lot of it had to do with the funding, which came from the province and the feds as well as locally, mm-hmm. but mainly from the province and the federal government. And um, when they saw the um, the objections growing. Uh, and it was all wrapped up with the destruction of Strathcona as well, or yeah. the, the attempted destruction of Strathcona. All of these were part of the package. The um, <clears throat> excuse me, the uh, federal government and the province pulled out. So without that support, yeah. uh, there was little they yeah, could it, do. And the viaducts were the result of that. Is that yes? The viaduct measure? was the only part of that freeway project that was built. Yes. And now they're going to be torn yeah, down yeah, so yeah, soon yeah. there won't be any sign. But yeah, the the Georgia Viaduct was the only part of the project that that uh, went ahead. The, the You do mention uh, Expo. I, I don't disagree with you about Expo as not necessarily being like the introduction of Vancouver to the world. I think that was a celebration within the city more so. Like I think we were probably more excited about it than anybody else. But the redevelopment of that land, yeah. False Creek, right at the base of where we are right now by Concord Pacific, I think did change what Vancouver became yes. downtown. The residential sort of area that was created there, parks, schools, kind of like bringing people to live downtown opposed to work downtown. Yes. I think that is a crucial change to what Vancouver is compared to other cities in the world. That yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. I, I think this is the phenomenon that became known as Vancouverism. Yes, exactly. This uh, creation of a downtown community, uh, diverse, Mm-hmm. Uh, green and so on. Um, yeah, it became a hallmark for for uh, for Vancouver in a, uh, in many ways. It's interesting um, because of that. I I feel li- living here that in the '90s and the early early part of this century, um, Vancouver had a kind of optimism about it, a feeling that it had solved certain urban problems. And um, I find that's gone away, that feeling a bit. And there's a feeling that we're sinking under our problems sometimes. We talked about the downtown east side a bit. Um, I don't know. It was just a feeling I had as I was working on the book and living here during that time. that we because Vancouverism for all it's that that is a great community as you say it's interesting though to stand on the south side of False Creek looking across at it and then compare it to the uh, to the False Creek South development so right. much more open so much more low rise yeah um, uh, they're two they seem to be two different approaches to development which struck me as reflective of two different decades the 70s versus the 90s. That's and you can sort of see these two uh, aspects of Vancouver just when you're down there walking on the seawall. Yeah, that's really interesting. I never looked at it that way. I've always, <laughs> I've always enjoyed the outlook from the south slope yeah. towards downtown. Yeah. With the buildings and the mountains and like everything kind of in behind you. Yeah. Like very iconic Vancouver, in my opinion. But that's that's right. I, that's what I grew up with. I think uh, I think though a, a lot of people probably feel that we were talking about the the challenge is coming up about the development of False Creek South. Mm-hmm. A lot of people, I think,
think are afraid oh, yeah. that False Creek North is what False Creek South is going to become. Well, the Olympic Village so, sort of shows you that. Yeah. I mean, that's what the Olympic Village that's right. is becoming, too. Yeah. Like downtown, too. So know? it'll be nice to find maybe a way to preserve that uh, lower. But this is the challenge of, of, of Vancouver. The theme, basic theme of the book that I try and identify is this pull uh, that, that's always been in the city between, you know, leveraging its location, which everybody admits is fantastic, yep. into making it this so-called world-class city and so mm-hmm. on, um, privileging development, and, mm-hmm. and as opposed to people who would rather keep it a little slower um, and uh, not worry so much about uh, what the rest of the world <laughs> thinks of it or attracts people here yeah. and trying to keep uh, it a more livable city would be the phrase as opposed to the world class. And you see, uh, certainly historically, you see this coming up all the time, these two pulls. And, um, and uh, I think you see it in almost every issue yeah. that people debate in the city. Lifestyle versus what, right? Yeah. You know, and, yeah. and that's the thing. It was lifestyle versus industry at the very beginning, right? And yeah. Now, now it's like... I don't know. Quality of life is definitely number one. If you ask most people why they move to Vancouver, I mean, it's quality of life. It's not usually because they got, you know, some big promotion and had to move here for some reason. Yeah. Um, but you know, the, the growth of how downtown has been created and the communities of, you know, it's like 80% residential up to 20% commercial in downtown Vancouver. You can only find that in like Hong Kong and anywhere else in the world, which makes us incredibly unique. And I think it's part of the evolution of what the city's going to be uh, moving forward. And then we have the problems with housing costs and so on and so forth. And the only real way to sort of deal with that is by increasing the numbers of actual residents or mm-hmm. homes that we have. So, so what, how do we, we solve that? <laughs> we, were, we were talking about uh, turning points. Another one we should mention is, of course, the birth of the condo, right? Uh, which completely transformed the way Vancouverites live. I suppose it probably transformed in other cities. Yes. Uh, but here it was the Strata Titles Act in 1967 that created the condo. We don't realize what a short history the condo as I live in one, yeah, and uh, and it's only going back to the seventies when suddenly all uh, these neighborhoods uh, were were transformed. Uh, Fairview Heights is an example. Right. The slopes, I mean, yes. Fairview yeah, slopes mean. there. And uh, in my day, when I was at university, that was a neighborhood of old homes, inexpensive rents, lots of students, lots of pensioners, anybody looking for reasonable accommodation close to the city, um, and they all disappeared in a very short time and we're replaced by condos and so on. Cheap condos um, too, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, yes, well, it turned out it had, the other turned out they had their own problems, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. But, I, I, I mean, the number of condos and so the way Vancouverites lived mm-hmm. really changed in the 70s and that's a big uh, a big turning point in the city. Huge, huge turning point in yeah. the city. What do, you, what, do you, what do you think the future of this city is going to be? Where oh. do you think we're going? I, I'm a his- <laughs> I'm a historian. I always <laughs> defer. It's, it's funny how often that question's asked of a yeah. historian, as if knowing about the past helps me uh, understand the future. But it doesn't actually. It doesn't. So I, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I'm looking for a crystal ball here, Dan. That's uh, like in real estate, we're always asked that question, right? Of course, yeah. we're supposed to know what's going to happen. And I can tell you. I mean, I've grown up in real estate. I mean, I, my father has been in real estate as long as I've been around. I can remember kind of going back to fun 
fun stories in your book is you mentioned Casamia as yeah. one of the items I can remember my dad being in the Vancouver Sun because it was the first home being sold for more than a million dollars in Vancouver. Oh, yeah. He was a listing agent. Built by the old bootlegger. That's exactly right. <laughs> so I can remember being a little kid running through those hallways. And oh, yeah. Lost in these rooms oh. that were like these secret little portals into like pool table or billiards rooms. Yeah. And, so, and it was it was quite fascinating. But um, as I as I'm saying that I've grown up in Vancouver and, and it, the future is is very um, unpredictable, I think, in Vancouver, because I don't think we know which direction we're going to go yet. I think that's the there is a constant battle between like the lifestyle and the environment yep. and then commerce. Right. Right. I mean, you know, let's capitalize on what we got here or uh, do we preserve it? Yeah. You know, and I don't think. So my job as a historian is to point that out <laughs> and, and explain how it uh, developed historically. But I don't have any more insight about the future than uh, I, I know that the neighborhoods that are going to be transformed in the next few years uh, would be the, the flats. Mm -hmm. uh, the uh, False Creek Flats there, the railway area where the hospital's going to go. And right. so obviously that that's changing. Yeah. And uh, False Creek South, again, is another big challenge for the city in the next few years. And the areas we mentioned that the indigenous people are involved in uh, developing housing. So you see those neighborhoods are really going to be transformed. I can remember the Jericho lands the, mm -hmm. where the old base was. When I was at, I went to Queen Mary, which is just the uh, on the west side. Yep. Uh, of uh, the, the west end of the Jericho lands mm -hmm. and uh, many kids I went to school with uh, their fathers were in the military and they grew up down on what we call the army base mm -hmm. and we'd walk down there after school and stuff and uh, boy that's going to be transformed perhaps while I'm still around Yeah. It, so I, I can identify a few of these obvious neighborhoods mm -hmm. that are going to change beyond that yeah I think I think if we just follow transit we'll we'll follow other developments yeah look at like what's happening in outside of Vancouver of course but like Langley and kind of areas that they're you know going to have you know more more transportation to those are other areas that will obviously sure and expand based on yeah that. so looking at kind of open fields that we have and and what else might come in the future is, yeah it's impossible to predict but I do think looking back on the history is helps people at least sort of analyze what has happened in the past to see maybe what should happen in the future. Uh -huh. and, uh, Good. Well, I, know, so do I. I hope so too. So I intend on sharing your book uh, with as many people as I can, because I think as realtors, we need to be better informed about our city. And, and so that will be my, uh, I'm going to use you as a transportation method to my realtors on how to make sure that they learn about the city so that we can predict the future. Good. That's going to be my goal, even Good. though we can't. But Dan, I, I couldn't appreciate you coming in any more than I, um, it's, it's just been wonderful having well, I've enjoyed a conversation it. with you and I hope that we get to do this again sometime. That was, that was really excellent. So sure. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you, Andrew. 